Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Jeffrey Becker is a functional medicine psychiatrist and the co-founder and chief scientific officer for Bexson Biomedical. He is quite unusual as he looks at all the underlying factors that might contribute to depression or anxiety, particularly in the genome, in the gut, and in the micronutrient levels, before moving on to prescription drugs. He's also one of the foremost thinkers and clinicians when it comes to ketamine for treating depression, suicidal ideation, and complex trauma. In short, he has a lot to teach us all. Dr. Becker and I talk about his unique functional approach to mental health and what the markers can often be for depression and anxiety. We also discuss the profound healing effects, both chemically and symbolically, of ketamine on clinical depression. We also talk about ketamine's potential to help in the opioid crisis, which is what Bexson Biomedical is focused on addressing. People may be walking around with energy ups and downs crashing in their brain from low blood sugars and things like that, and it's getting called out as cyclothymia, or sometimes it gets called out as ADD, or it's depression. And that's just one of many examples of why I think psychiatry, I hope psychiatry, will start looking at these issues with every single patient. Let's get to my conversation with Dr. Jeffrey Becker. Thank you for being here. I love talking to you because you know everything. And that's a lot of pressure. (laughs) But I know that you're sort of rare as a psychiatrist in the sense that when you see patients, I mean, you're a foremost expert in ketamine, which we will definitely get to and talk about. But my understanding from your practice is that before you do anything with anyone, you sort of take a functional medical approach and ensure that there's nothing happening in their gut or in their blood work that might suggest a reason why they're struggling. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Like, can you take us through sort of your intake process and how you work with patients? Absolutely. It's interesting because I got to this as my mode after I started really at the top, kind of at the spiritual level. I studied mysticism in, in undergrad and with Houston Smith, and it was extremely meaningful to me as far as making sense of the world. I went to medical school thinking that I would be able to apply the medications to the kind of receptor problems that were being identified in psychiatric conditions. And over and over again, I found that the medicines were just not producing the outcomes that I had hoped. Uh, some, some of them work. And, and, and when you say medicines, you're talking about like psychiatric, psychiatric medication. Okay. Yeah. And so I started going deeper. I had always been interested in metabolism and, and 
basically the functional principles of, of disease, of health and disease. And I started to just dive deeper into what's going on in the brain. The brain is a black box, and it's a real problem in research because what's going on behind the blood-brain barrier can be very difficult to sort out, actually. So, But there are principles you can apply, and there are ways to kind of approach this. And I started applying that specifically in schizophrenia and saw such really quite amazing results, uh, fairly rapid, with supplements. And so I continued to dive deeper, and over you know course of eight years, I would call myself a solid functionalist at this point. I like to start there now because I don't think that it necessarily makes sense to throw a little bit like Maslow's pyramid. I mean, Mm -hmm. at the very base level, you know, the molecular health, you know, detox health, uh, having sufficient zinc and magnesium and chromium for blood sugar control and these kinds of things, very important to feeling well. And Mm -hmm. so if I'm going to throw a medication at what is essentially a behavioral pattern, that someone's describing that they feel depressed, I want to know that it has a chance to work. I also know that I'm, I'm actually identifying the right problem. Mm. So much of what I see now, I really believe, is energetics. Can you explain that? I mean, I know, like, for women in particular, now there's a lot more awareness around, like, B12 and what it can mm-hmm. do to mood. But So energetics. So mm-hmm. what does that mean? And what are the sort of common... You mentioned zinc, magnesium. Like, what are the things? Mm-hmm. What what's ha- what typically can happen? Mm-hmm. So, energetics. What I mean by that, it's 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 you know really a massive subject, of course. And and generally, we would think of it as the burning of fuel in an efficient mm-hmm. way without creating you know extra kind of garbage molecules, kind of the exhaust that comes off of the mitochondria. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we burn fuel, there's stuff that we make in our metabolism that's not that far off from what's coming out of a tailpipe of a car. Mm-hmm. And we have to deal with all of that and, and clean it up. Reactive oxygen species are a big problem. Oxygen is incredibly important. It's the hot molecule that you can cut bonds open with, oxidize them, release that energy. But in the process, we make all kinds of toxic molecules that we have to clean up. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people are walking around with insufficient supply of base molecules, kind of fundamental molecules in order to detox themselves properly, either make the antioxidants that they need to make that we make every day, something like glutathione or superoxide dismutase, SOD, which requires a copper molecule, Zinc is a very, you were asking some of the molecules, I find a lot of people are zinc deficient. Many, many people are zinc deficient. It's a little hard to assess and sort out if they are or not, but when you do figure that out and you treat them, they feel so much better. Magnesium, zinc and magnesium actually both are lost with modern lifestyle, especially with drinking, Hmm. uh, which is unfortunate because magnesium is incredibly important for calming the mind. It actually blocks the same receptor that alcohol blocks. But when we drink alcohol, we waste magnesium. Mm. And then we wake up in the morning, we don't feel so good, and we think about having another drink rather than eating magnesium-rich foods. Right. Yeah, so I'd like to assess all that and make sure that that's in place because I think once you start medications, you know, you're going down that route, and I like to know know what I'm dealing with. Mm -hmm. And then within that, as you start medications, like do you typically find that – a lot of, in terms of SSRIs or benzos or whatever it might be, are you do, you, do you get a better response? Or are you quick to be like, oh, this, you're not someone who's responding well to this. Let's take you off. Or is it something mm-hmm. that you put people on for a short time? Like, how do you think about mm-hmm. those? 
you know that that's a that's a complex question because everybody's different and their mm-hmm. situation is different. I think there are a lot of medications that are very appropriate for short-term management of crisis. Mm-hmm. Benzodiazepines are a great example. I mean, I think they can be extremely helpful when someone has something horrible that's happened in their life and they need to sleep and they need to be calm mm-hmm. and you need to keep control over right. over their life and. But you really want to get them off of them pretty quickly and be thinking about that. When I start something like that, I am thinking and talking with them about how short term this is going to be. And we've got to get all the rest of the pieces in place. SSRIs, I, I, I became a big fixer in Los Angeles. I was known for kind of mopping up regimens that didn't make a lot of sense or had too much overlap and kind of easing people into, into simpler regimens, left fewer medications, adding in supplements and things like that that could support mm-hmm. the medications in fairly, fairly Ill, Ill people. And I definitely, absolutely got to see the power of kind of proper application of functional principles. You mm-hmm. get the right nutrient on board for, the, for a patient with an identified problem, and you see a big change in how they respond not just to medicines, but to their life in general. Yeah, no, I've heard this about you from many people, sort of unrelated, who have been like, mm-hmm. Dr. Becker, like he's the one that take, can take the crisis and clean it up. So, and what what did though, what happened there? Is it that like GPs were putting people on SSRIs? Is it that maybe someone had an underlying issue that was then exploited by mm-hmm. like, were they having an adverse reaction? Because like, you hear about that, but you don't hear a lot about that with with things like SSRIs that people might have a that they might facilitate or create like a personality break. Is mm-hmm. that does that happen? Well, it definitely can. I mean, people people will definitely come in to me and they don't feel like themselves. They mm-hmm. feel there's something wrong and they don't know what it is. But when you look at what's going on in terms of the number of medications they're taking. And then, you know, when it's sometimes, it's not always the case, but when labs come back, they're like, okay, no wonder you don't feel well. Mm-hmm. Your B12 is rock bottom. You've got, you know, really low zinc levels, really no low magnesium levels, you know, poor detox. Some people's glutathione levels are overtly low or their genetics come back. And it shows me that they actually have a lot of trouble using glutathione floating around. There are people that can be missing certain enzymes even. So... I wouldn't say that the medications per se are the problem all the time. It's just that it's kind of the wrong tool for the problem, for right. you know, where the leverage is. And the leverage, when you apply it at the bottom, is so powerful that that's why I believe it should be applied first because mm-hmm. everything else is kind of contingent on those systems working properly. Right. No, that makes a lot of yeah. sense. Yeah. So I'm not, it's, to me, it's all, it's, it's not either or. It's really just about staging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that makes it it makes so much sense. It's kind of shocking that that's not how everyone approaches it. Yeah, right. Well, the you know the toolbox that we are offered in our training is is very specifically in psychiatry specifically. I, I think other fields of medicine, some of them are more advanced than us. Some mm-hmm. some have problems like we do as well. But in psychiatry, the problem the the toolbox is generally kind of behavioral approaches, therapy. Some alternative approach is kind of sending people out to different medical systems, acupuncture, Ayurveda, Mm -hmm. things like that. That's happening, and and a lot of psychiatrists are now integrative in that sense. Medications, which if you you just know this, 
every single, basically almost every single medication, there are a few exceptions, but almost every single medication is a molecule that never existed on the earth before. Mm -hmm. It was brought to market. It's the way our system works. It's the way that you get something approved. But all of the natural molecules, all the things that run our entire bodies, we learn about in medical school, but we really don't learn much about them in training when we learn the nuts and bolts of actually being a doctor, mm -hmm. applying our knowledge, the, the trade aspect of medicine. Medicine becomes a trade. It starts out as, as an academic kind of adventure. I think it's just amazing those first two years, and then it becomes a trade very quickly. Mm. And unfortunately... I don't know. We just, we seem to forget, you know, the first two years of, of biochemistry and, and uh, pathophysiology and things like that. Yeah. You mentioned B12. It's, I mean, it's a huge, huge issue. Yeah. How, how, I mean, people can have normal B12 levels and have a functional B12 deficiency and not even know it. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, not, it's not hard to assess that actually, but it's very rare that it is. Yeah. And there's, it seems like we live in this world that constantly, and in our experience, we don't we don't find this to be true. It's sort of like a false narrative that it's like alternative versus conventional mm -hmm. and like all SSRIs are bad versus all supplements are bullshit, right? Like it's this, mm -hmm. it's this either or black and white world where most of the people that we work with and talk to are like, there's greatness on all sides. And it just need again, as you've mm -hmm. said, it needs to be leveraged correctly. And we're all individual and we have our unique sort of, we're unique in every way, and the same thing isn't going to affect me the way that it's going to affect you. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about depression and then eventually get into some of the, like you were talking about, like I don't, I'd love to talk to you about like bipolar and schizophrenia and those mm -hmm. things as well. But so how did you start working with ketamine? Because mm -hmm. I know you sort of academically and otherwise are leading on, have been sort of at it for the longest mm -hmm. and are creating protocols and put, bringing it forward academically. So how did that start? Uh, okay. So, so to be clear, I am, I have been a clinician using ketamine for a, a very long time compared to other people in the field. And I do have some academic interests and I speak at conferences. I am not definitely a part of the groups that really did some of the heavy lifting, like mm -hmm. the Yale, Yale group that really brought a lot of this uh, information to the public through hard research and all that, all that w difficult work. I really hats off to them. That being said, I have a clinical expertise that's really clearly recognized. And I got into this because I, well, I studied again mysticism in college and I, I had the, I was lucky enough to have a chance to try ketamine when I was at Berkeley I in my tell. undergrad. <laughs> and it was, I had tried the other psychedelics as well. I found them very, very meaningful. Mm -hmm. They really changed my life. But I found the gentleness and the, the, the strength, the kind of power of ketamine and, the, and the simultaneously the gentleness of it particularly interesting. It felt so different than the somewhat harrowing kind of experience with psychedelics, which can be, you know, very powerful, but it's a little bit like kind of, you know, burning karma off in a crucible rather than kind of a, <laughs> you know, the gentle, the gentleness. It's hard. Yeah, yeah. There's a sweetness yeah. to, to ketamine. And so... I started studying it in undergrad, and I actually reached out to Houston Smith to ask him if I could work with him as my advisor to map the neurobiology of ketamine and its actions at the NMDA receptor, which hadn't been, a, we had not known about that receptor for that long yet. It was mm -hmm. exciting. It was new research, and ended up mapping 
the subjective effects of ketamine and also to some extent this, the neurobiology of ketamine onto the, and the academic field of, of mysticism, which is a real thing. It's actually some people don't realize this, you know, for centuries people, mystics have been discussing the nature of transcendence and what it is. Mm-hmm. So I was often running in that way. I kind of quietly talked with a number of different attending physicians at UCLA, and they really got a handle on me as a doctor, my, the, the, the carefulness of, with which I made decisions, the seriousness with which I made them as well. And they really said, I could see how you would want to offer this to patients. And I talked with anesthesiologists as well, and I talked to them about you know kind of safe dosing. It is IM, FDA approved. And I then just started doing it which was astounding how effective it was, but I was quiet and didn't, uh, I didn't go out there and kind of talk about it that much. I just was kind of working as a clinician. Yeah. And over the years just accrued a lot of knowledge. And it's powerful because it sort of can remodel the brain, right? So for people who are chronically depressed, clinically depressed, like with suicidal ideation, Mm -hmm. it can sort of snap them out of that it's amazing for suicidality really quite it's actually probably better for that than you know the overarching kind of category of depression per se Mm -hmm. a lot of times suicidality is associated with depression but strangely it's sometimes not at least classical symptoms of depression suicidal thoughts can actually be more of almost like a spiritual despair Mm. And that is all, that's really where I would say ketamine crosses over from just being a medicine to being almost sacramental for some people where they feel that they've been able to experience divine within, experience God in the way that they see it or feel it, understand, understand it. And that can be very healing, very profoundly soothing mm-hmm. for someone that has felt estranged. We have a process in our brain that, that, that kind of grows in adolescence. There's a GABAergic inner neuron net, we call it, and it's made up of a number of different neurons, but there are two very important neurons that are what we call fast spiking. They are very fast in their ability to control the majority of our thinking neurons, which are the pyramid cells. So these inhibitory neurons control our pyramid cells, which is really, honestly, the vast majority of what you would call thinking mm-hmm. would be pyramidal cells talking to each other and exchanging information. And these inhibitory neurons can gain control over thinking at a level that can be distressing in terms of how constrictive it is. Mm. Sometimes in depression, you can hear people will tell you that they feel like they're having the same 10 thoughts over and over again. Mm. Very scary, really, if you think about how small that feels. Interestingly enough, I mean, one of the fascinating things that we've figured out, and this has, again, been a you know, 20-year adventure learning how this works, ketamine very specifically at the doses we use in depression turn off, turn down at least, the activity of a specific neuron called the chandelier cell. And when you release the inhibitory tone of the chandelier cell upon the surrounding pyramid cells, thinking is released from this kind of constrictive process. Mm. And after the ketamine leaves, what we think is happening to some extent is that all of these neurons that have not had a chance to talk to each other, it's a little bit when the, when the cat's away, the mice will play, uh, you know, they've kind of learned and how to talk to each other and they increase their, their dendrite connections and things like that. Chandelier cells come back online, but they can't gain control 
as much over it because it's it's kind of it's kind of been off and running while the chandelier cell wasn't looking. It's interesting. Yeah, and so and then people do ketamine if they're they'll do it monthly or quarterly or yearly yeah. or. It really depends on the person and the, and the and the approach. I think a lot of people, a lot of practitioners, clinicians feel that in the early stages, somebody's in a really serious depression, it makes sense probably to do it twice a week for two to three weeks. It's a little bit akin to our old models of ECT, mm-hmm. where you do kind of a hard reboot, mm-hmm. and then you do it again, you do it again, you kind of hold them in that rebooted state for a period of time, help them kind of climb out. That is that can be very effective for that kind of circumstance. There are a lot of people actually who will find that ketamine helped them. They've made some changes in their life and then they need kind of a reboot. They might need kind of to come in and just use it once or twice, maybe in a month because of some interpersonal difficulty or something like Mm -hmm. that. That's kind of, they've got a vulnerability to or something like that. They can feel themselves slipping. We'll get back to Jeffrey Becker in just a second. I am not what you would call a from scratch baker, and our food editor, Caitlin, tells me that's okay. So I appreciate companies that take some of the work out of preparing good food. And I like products that both my kids and I can enjoy. Simple Mills makes everything from crackers, cookies, and snack bars, to baking mixes and pancake mixes and frostings. And they're made from only simple whole food ingredients and nothing artificial. All Simple Mills products are non-GMO and naturally free of grains, gluten, and soy. And the number one ingredient in each of their products is always something nutrient-dense, like nuts or seeds. So it's a little easier to follow that 80-20 rule. Simple Mills makes nine different baking mixes, including artisan bread, pancakes and waffles, muffin mixes, brownies, pizza dough, and more. The number one ingredient in each of the mixes is almond flour, and they have less sugar than most other baking mixes. Another Simple Mills favorite of mine are their almond flour crackers, specifically the cheddar flavor. I'll admit, they're dangerous, but if you want to get a lot of steps in as you walk to your desk, to your kitchen, they might be your thing. I couldn't stop until I ate the whole box. From now through June 30th, use promo code GOOP15 for 15% off your order on simplemills.com while supplies last. That's simplemills.com using code GOOP15 for 15% off your order while supplies last. Back to my chat with Dr. Jeffrey Becker. So I've tried ketamine, and so I want to talk to you about the uh, – I don't have depression, so I want to talk to you about sort of the spiritual experience of it and what's happening there. But before that, before we get to that, Ketamine is interesting. So I know that there are ketamine clinics popping up everywhere, many run by sort of anesthesiologists. How important is it? And I know it kind of works regardless, but in your mind, how important is it that it's paired with talk therapy or some sort of integration or, or holding of space versus just having the chemical experience? Mm-hmm. It's a very good question. It's kind of a, a, a hot question in the community. There's a lot of different opinions, and, and sometimes at the conferences there can be enough disagreement. It can get uncomfortable, actually. <laughs> you know, I'm a little bit in the middle. I, I have a, I have a mixed, mixed feelings about taking any strong stance in either position. I, 
I, th- I feel very grateful for a lot of the anesthesiologists that have produced high quality clinics that mm-hmm. can get people in. They have some, some very well run processes that can get patients in that need to be seen. Yeah. And being able to get in when you need to be seen is a big deal. We as psychiatrists are often not available. Yeah. I'm, I'm not available very often. And so I, I can't help the all the people that need it. And that being said, I think that it is very, very helpful to have somebody that not only understands ketamine, but can help pull the symbol, the symbolism out of the experience. Because when you're in a ketamine mind state, when ketamine is on board and these pyramid cells are released from all of this inhibition, the brain goes up into this high gamma, it's kind of almost a singularity throughout the entire brain. It's highly symbolic. Mm-hmm. And in general, I would say the average human being doesn't quite understand what it is to interact with symbol. We generally interact with sign, mm-hmm. which are the kind of the smaller, more uh, kind of ego-based, everyday consciousness icon that will point to something larger. So words, for example, are signs. We use a word to signify something. The word is not the thing it's signifying. It gives us a larger understanding of something larger, but we can never quite grasp. We can never quite hold it, right? Mm -hmm. But we can write that word down and we can be in control of it to some extent. So I do a lot of talking about capturing the symbol. And what I've seen in my practice is that when people are able to to identify the specific symbolism of their own experience, there is enormous power in that. It becomes almost like a talisman or, a, or an amulet that they get to carry with them. This kind of missive from their high self, their deep self, that can keep them safe when you know they're in their everyday world and things become too much. They can kind of turn to that and understand this larger... Yeah. I mean... My experience didn't surprise me at all in the sense that I feel like I, for the last four or so years at Goop, have been operating under this idea that we're not like playing a game, but that, you know, we're, this is earth school and there's like a, a big, some bigger experience outside of us and that we're all connected. And so when I did ketamine, I mean, first of all, it was, it was wild but I also, it was a, a rehashing of those concepts. So I wasn't sort of, I can imagine if you've never thought about anything like that, you'd be like, holy shit. Because my whole experience was like, I am everything and nothing. And I am everywhere and nowhere. And it was like this building, I was like in Legoland building, like just sort of part of this massive construction of these, I don't even know if they were buildings or m- massive figureheads and then it would all explode and I was sort of relaxing into it and the dissolution of myself and then the rebuilding and dissolution. So I was like, yeah, of course, but it was fun. It was really fun and, and super interesting. But for some people to see that, and there was only one event, the one event that felt like it was deeply meaningful in like a here now type of way was feeling out of control of my body and worrying that I was going to wet the bed. Because mm-hmm. I was a, <laughs> I wet the bed until, I don't know how old I was, probably seven. Old and I had to wear diapers. And then my mom, they like got some sort of, I claimed that it gave me electric shocks. 
but they say that that's not true. But some sort of bad thing that shocked me because I clearly I didn't wake up like my I, my subconscious was gone. Like I was not in my body when I was sleeping. And so I had that experience. And then seeing my oldest son who has the same thing where he still needs diapers at night and is just gone. And so that that felt like something I needed to process. But the rest of it was like just I get it. We're in some sort of like game within. I'm in the Lego movie, essentially. I'm gonna f- fall off the table. <laughs> well, that's fun. That's. I mean, I I want to use your uh, Earth School metaphor. That's yeah. great. Yeah. If you, that's exactly the case. I think if you've done a, a lot of kind of, it sounds like integration up to upper levels in terms of you know mm-hmm. honoring your soul at a certain level and so it's not necessarily a surprise when you go in and say oh i have i have this deeper deeper aspect to myself yeah that's that's fun that's fun and is that so is that for most is that revelation because that's the most helpful thing for me in life is like everything has a reason there's a lesson in everything this is school this is school like that's how i get through everything pretty much so for people is it typically that's the type of revelation or people coming to all sorts of other awarenesses? I think, yeah, when people are kind of either psychically, mentally, hopefully not in this, by the time we're doing this metabolically, Mm -hmm. uh, but suppressed, there's often some kind of false premise that they're living under, or maybe they haven't taken control over their life. Mm -hmm. There's, there are fears that are getting in the way of them doing what they want to do or what they know they need to do. And it sounds to me like you're doing what you need to be doing. And so, so, yeah, that particular revelation you see over and over and over again. And it sounds like to some extent you didn't need that revelation specifically. Yeah. You I did mean, have the, the unity of opposites, kind of the resolution paradox a lot from what mm-hmm. you're describing, which is very common and very common in mysticism. Yeah. No, I'm sure. And it felt like, interestingly, that there wasn't a lot for me to do. Like it, it wasn't the most interactive experience. It was more of a like relax and like let it happen experience. Like it, whereas since the Netflix show has come out, I've tried also done MDMA psycho psychotherapy sort of within sort of a maps like protocol. And that was a lot of work. Like Mm -hmm. that was like a very physical experience, very hard. Whereas this was like a a light and music show. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And is it that, like, you can't grasp it, therefore, it's like, I don't know what I would bring to my therapist, I guess, is my point. Like, I didn't feel like I needed to work it out. So maybe it is one of those experiences that can just almost stand by itself. I think that's definitely true. Sometimes people do not have much content. It's true. Mm-hmm. And then when they come back, they will tell you, it's it's interesting, this week I've been realizing that I need to do X, Y, and Z, or I have forgotten these aspects of myself, or I'm speaking more specifically about what I need in my marriage. Mm -hmm. These kinds of things just kind of, I think there's almost a sense of people feeling all of a sudden like they have a right to exist Mm -hmm. and that they, uh, that their honesty, their authenticity is, is reasonable and, and worth listening to. And they, they can assert themselves without feeling shame and guilt and these things that get in the way. 
So let's talk about other, like you mentioned, schizophrenia, things that are like bipolar, things that are very difficult and obviously incapacitating for people, really hard to understand, really hard to treat. And just this is completely from the perspective of a lay person, but having many people in my life, like I feel like bipolar, it feels like everyone is being diagnosed as Mm -hmm. bipolar. Like what are, in your experience, like are there interventions or is it, is it, what's happening? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, bipolar is, is, you know, to speak to that specifically, we are as psychiatrists uh, diagnosing bipolar substan- at substantially higher rates than what was originally felt to be uh, the prevalence. Mm-hmm. And I personally think a lot of what we're seeing here is the kind of ups and downs in mood and energy and even the physical aspects of dropping energy from either a toxic lifestyle or nutrient deficiencies and things like that. So uh, uh, here's one quick example. So chromium. Chromium is very important for glucose tolerance factor. We need chromium in order to process sugar. Unfortunately, when we take in a lot of sugar, we pee out chromium. It's a bit of a bad loop. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wouldn't design the system that way if you had a choice. Okay, let's add to this. The soil and the food in the United States has been documented to have gone down by 30% in chromium. Mm-hmm. So the food we're eating is actually not sufficient in terms of loading the chromium we may need. And we're eating more carbohydrate and more sugar than ever. This is kind of an obvious feed forward feedback loop that mm-hmm. might leave a lot of people short on chromium. We don't have any labs that can assess chromium except for maybe spectrocell, but uh, it's basically a very difficult molecule to assess. So people may be walking around with energy ups and downs crashing in their brain from low blood sugars and things like that. And it's getting called out as cyclothymia or sometimes it gets called out as ADD or it's depression. And that's just one of many examples of why I think psychiatry, I hope psychiatry will start looking at these issues with every single patient. Mm -hmm. There is real bipolar. There's no question about that. And when you see the real deal, when you see the full blown, you know, bipolar one in a manic episode, there's no question. This is a brain that's not working properly. And thank, thank God for medications in those circumstances. But Again, I really think that we we roll too quickly into calling something uh, something that fits a pattern without mm-hmm. trying to figure out why. Understand that's really just a phenotype, and you know the underlying causes are uh, should be identified better. So, what's your sort of best advice for people who? They're, you're rare, like that's why everyone in LA calls you, right? So, in terms of for people who are struggling. I mean, I think ketamine for depression is obviously a good place to start, but for people who feel like they're taking, they don't even know what they're, they're taking, they're taking layers of medicine or they feel mismanaged or like they don't know where to start. How would you, like, what's your best advice? Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a tough question. Cause you really, I mean, I, I try to be not careful not to step on anybody's toes. I, you know, what I was saying before is that when people don't know there's a tool available, it's not nice to, to, uh, you know, shame them, shame them yeah. or, you know, tell them that they should know better when they weren't told. And it's not something that was part of their training. 
Uh, one, a couple things I would say. Um, naturopaths tend to be more oriented this way. So someone with an ND that got a naturopathic medicine degree, and they may be able to do a workup that's a bit deeper. You might look for a functional MD or a functional DO. Some chiropractors actually do a really nice job of looking at people's situation. What I would also say in caution is that there, it's become in vogue a bit, and there are definitely circumstances I'm seeing now where people are getting upsold to treatments that are way, way too early, mm -hmm. in my opinion. What I'm seeing sometimes is doctors that uh, used to do really good work not doing the primary workup anymore, jumping kind of past it, sometimes using probably reasonable intuition, but not maybe doing the, the heavy lifting that's tedious to do the work, figure out what's going on, and kind of moving to maybe more lucrative approaches, you know, procedural stuff, stuff that you have to come into the clinic and, mm -hmm. you know, blood treatments and things like that. NAD plus is an example, probably has amazing effects for people in the right circumstance. It's not something that you should be doing in the second visit with a functionalist. If you have not had a broader workup and looked at what else might be going on. Mm -hmm. um, I am a huge, huge fan of SpectraCell's micronutrient array. And I will just shout out to them. I think they do one of the most amazing assessments of nutrient status. And it's different than any other lab that exists. It's actually what I would consider the only functional test out there. They take white blood cells and they put them on different mediums that are missing a nutrient. Mm. And then atom hydrogen tell the uh, white cells to divide and they see how they do. And you can get a read on which nutrients are limiting in these cells that came out of this human and everything else we do, every other lab pretty much is a snapshot. It's a single moment in time in a single compartment in the body. And it's not functional. Mm -hmm. So to do your blood work with SpectraCell, it needs to go through your doctor? I'm assuming they don't. It does need to go through your doctor. Somebody needs to write the, write the, the rec form. Okay. Um, I would love for SpectraCell to join like walk-in labs or one of the brokered lab groups. You know, I don't know if you know, you can get, you can just order labs online now, but they're usually, there'll be the offerings from uh, LabCorp, I believe, or Quest. Quest is one of them for okay. sure. Walk-in labs and uh, direct labs are both two, two websites. Very smart. Yeah. And very subversive. Yeah, no, I but it's, it. it's, it's kind of funny, <laughs> but it's coming to that because it's really hard to get a lot of doctors to order labs. Yeah. And I'm sure some people are you like, there's way too much testing, et cetera, but it feels like most of us have no idea what our baselines are. There is too much testing and then there's not enough. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I have people, I mean, can't believe you have to ask your doctor for a vitamin D level. If you want to optimize your vitamin D on your own, like really, yep. you need to ask somebody for permission. Yep. Doesn't make sense. That's how it goes. All right. So SpectraCell, ask your doctor. Mm -hmm. SpectraCell, if you're listening, join with the, um, what is it called? Uh, spe so SpectraCell is the name of the company that runs the lab. And the lab that I really deeply appreciate is their micronutrient array. Micronutrient yeah, array. Yeah, they do a bunch of other labs as well. And they do a great job on those as well. But those are those you can get. Uh, from a normal, from a, from a, one of the large national lab uh, chains, but you can't get SpectraCell's other lab anywhere else. They're the only ones that do it that I know of. So there's a big problem with, again, brain function because we just have, we just can't look behind the blood brain barrier very easily. 
every once in a while there's a postmortem study and those are just worth gold where they actually look at brain tissue mm-hmm. in a specific condition. There was actually a study looking at schizophrenia and they found that the B12 levels were one eighth of normal compared to controls. And if you look at the blood in schizophrenia, it will be a little lower, but nothing to write home about, you know, 15% lower. I don't remember the number, but it's not, not, it's not notable. One eighth of, of normal. And on top of it, it's all cyanocobalamin because they, so many of them smoke. And so they deactivate their B12. So it's one eighth of normal and it's deactivated. Mm, Wild. Really wild. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like it's moving fast though, in terms of getting into that black box? Like, do you, has, are we making strides in our understanding of the brain? Not, not at the level I, w- I had hoped or actually even expected. I thought that we would be doing better by now, honestly. There's a lot of factors. I, I sat down once and tried to just identify all the things that get in the way. And I ended up with 20 different factors that are, mm-hmm. you know, to maybe even more than that, that were all colluding to kind of keep us stuck in this particular medical model. And, you know, there's things that work in the model. I, 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 I don't argue with that. It's just that there are things that definitely don't work. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are not, we're, we're not moving as quickly as, as I would hope. So what's your, your, particularly in the context of working with something like ketamine, where people are having these incredibly spiritual experiences and obviously starting out studying mysticism, like what's your, what's your bigger under, do you have a larger understanding? Like what's happening to our brains when we're having those psychedelic experiences? Do you like, what's your theory of consciousness? Mm -hmm. I mean, what, what do you think is going on? Well, that's a fun (laughs) question. It's my favorite question. It's a, it's a tough one to answer, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a little bit of uh, wordplay to explain kind of how I think what we... Uh, I have no idea what we are. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that it's so fantastic, and it's, I, I really, to some extent, I'm a deist, really, if my religious kind of orientation. And I think that in many ways, in a very, very real way, not just metaphor, I feel that we are, in some ways, the eyes of God looking mm-hmm. at the creation. And that we are God knowing itself through, through the welling up of consciousness. Hmm. I think that we are shielded from the awesomeness, which can actually be awful when it becomes too much. Mm-hmm. And it's not really compatible with hunting for nuts and berries and paying the rent and you know doing things we don't want to do and saying yes to a boss we don't want to work for and these kinds of things. And so there's a lot of programming that has reduced our consciousness to a level that allows us to survive. That process, I think we do understand. I think we have, the, we have a real handle now on what causes, what causes the reducing valve that takes this more expansive transcendent consciousness and brings it down into a more manageable subset. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is like Aldous Huxley talked about this with psychedelics, that there was a there was a reducing valve to, to, you know, protect us to some extent, mm-hmm. but it ended up alienating us in the process. I think that smaller part of ourselves is what we're not, not. I don't know what we are, but I do know, I think we do know uh, to a substantial level what makes us what we're not, not. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of our everyday consciousness. What we become, whether it's a transcendent state, I don't know. It's wonderful. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's healing and it's, uh, you know, it's not necessarily something we can visit a lot. I think we need to come back and do our work, but 
uh, it's it's a real blessing that yeah. it's available to us. No, it's inter- it's it's my favorite question too because materialists and like the two ideas of consciousness to me, like the materialist view being that there is no there there like this is it on Earth, and that we're somehow in our brains creating consciousness and creating this world versus the people who believe what what you suggested, which is that our brains are filtering out some bigger, more complex picture. Like that view just makes so much more sense. Like I don't understand how our brains could create consciousness at the same, like that how we would be having this experience of each other simultaneously by creating the same thing. And like that doesn't, I don't, it like hurts my brain to think Mm. about it and it makes no sense. Whereas this filtering mechanism and the other thing that, like this came up during my, one of my MDMA sessions, but I was I kept repeating. I was like, "I'm me. I'm not my biology. I'm me. I'm not my biology," which seemed to make so much sense. That's a conversation for another day. But it reminds me too of this conversation when I first started getting interested in this. I talked to not for the podcast, but on the phone with this oncologist, Dr. Jeffrey Long, who created. The so he has the single greatest repository of near-death experiences, and they're translated from all over the globe, and then he sort of compiled them and studied them and wanted to understand the similarities between people's experiences. And he wrote a book about it. And I was talking to him, and he said, he was telling me about this joint near-death experience of fiancé. The man survived, and and his fiance didn't. And he recounted his near death experience of they were in a car accident, and they both were lifted up. And he was like aware of these sentient, these spiritual sentient beings coming to her. And then they were separated, and she was taken. And he went back down, and he was aware that her head was on his shoulder, but he knew she was gone, and he was back in his body. So like. terribly sad and so anyway I was like but what why would he survive like why did he survive and she didn't and and he was like it's it was a failure of biology her she couldn't or she physically couldn't sustain life for some reason like that to me particularly like when you're talking about the exhaust fumes from the car like that seems to be the other thing like we are our bodies but Mm -hmm. we're not like we're just sort of driving these Mm -hmm. faulty machines and we have we I think we believe we have so much control, but yet, like, we don't. No, we we are absolutely the nexus of body, mind, and spirit, and body is extremely important. And mm-hmm. it's you know we wouldn't be kind of consciousness embodied in matter without it. And it seems to be the rules of this universe that we're in. Mm-hmm. And it's there's a lot of sorrow and pain because of it. I think there's there's it's. You know, it's it's laden with a very heavy, very a lot of heaviness. Mm-hmm. You know, just death at the simplest level, but just how many limits we have. Yeah, limits and the betrayals mm-hmm. that we all experience, yeah. and sort of the the prison that it can create for so mm-hmm. many people. There's a there's a concept I found I have found extremely helpful that I would pass on. I, I think honestly, it may be the most single most important paradigm for me. And it's not, it's not mine, it's Houston Smith's, and it's in his book called The Forgotten Truth. And he essentially lays out the argument that being is a literal dimension, 
and that this is not a metaphor. It is an actual dimension and that we live at the nexus of space, time, and being. Mm. And that being is a dimension that actually has uh, kind of quantitative and qualitative qualities. So some things have more being than other things. I think we can all basically agree that we have more, humans have more being than a plant or a rock, Mm -hmm. you know, that the plant has more being than the rock even. So, you know, at, at a at a granular level, maybe we'll argue about certain aspects of that, but, but the fact that there is hierarchy in being seems to be factual. Mm-hmm. And when we're looking upwards to layers of existence that might have more being, there can be this sense of wonder, this longing. And when we look downwards, there's this sense of obligation, of, of stewardship, of, of tending. I think we're forgetting both of those sometimes. I think mm-hmm. we're, a lot of the problems we're, we're experiencing on this earth are really not honoring either one of those, mm. of, of those qualities as we look in both through each direction. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Jeffrey Becker. To learn more about Dr. Becker, head to jeffreybeckermd.com or check out Bexen Biomedical. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.